Turn with me in your Bibles there to the passage we read a moment ago. The last part of Acts chapter 8. You'll find it on page 1101. Acts chapter 8. I heard today on the radio that today is, is Star Wars Day. Apparently, I, I didn't know that. Um, may the 4th be with you. Is, sorry, that's a, a horrible joke, but we're going to pray just now that something much less tenuous um, and much more real than, than anything in the Star Wars film uh, would be a reality for us here this evening, that the presence of God uh, would meet with us as we spend a few moments thinking on God's Word together. Let's pray. Father God, you have promised that when we gather in your name, that you're there among us. Not there among us, here among us. And in particular, you've promised that your same Spirit who spoke through the centuries and through the millennia, who inspired the the writers of your word, that your same Spirit will speak to us if only we open our hearts and our minds to him. Lord, we do that. We welcome you. We welcome your spirit. And we're all ears as we listen to what you would say to us this evening. Amen. Around about four weeks ago, uh, at this time, on the 6th of April, uh, a huge event was happening down in the Odyssey, It was the last evening of the Franklin Graham Crusade Celebration of Hope. Over the period of two or three days down there at the Odyssey, I think it's somewhere between 30 and 40,000 people who came along to hear Franklin Graham uh, preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Thousands of those people responded in some way or other uh, on, on one of those events. Uh, some came forward and committed their lives to Jesus Christ for the first time, uh, and others recommitted themselves uh, to a life with him. I wonder what you think of those kind of events, the, the mass evangelistic event. Some people love them uh, and, and think they're absolutely wonderful that they, the, the church ought to be engaging at these, in these always and often. Other people, if they're honest, don't like them at all. They, they're a bit uh, cynical uh, of the big event and, and some of the hype that, that can go with it. And other people are a bit more measured. They, they see that there's good in it, but that we maybe need to be careful. They wonder if it's more yesterday's method of evangelism than tomorrow's. So there are all sorts of, of questions people have in their mind when they think, of the the mass evangelistic event. As I've been reading these early chapters of Acts, it struck me that I don't ever want to be writing off mass evangelism. And the reason reason for that is everything that's happened in Acts chapter 1 to to chapter 8 seems to have been mass evangelistic events. When Peter first got up to preach at Pentecost, we don't know how many people were in the crowd But we do know that there were so many people that the number of people who got up out of their seats and came forward, if you like, was 3,000. 
we can only imagine that there were, there were more, maybe considerably more than 3,000 people there that day. We read on in Acts, and we discover that Peter sets up shop in Solomon's colonnade just near the temple there. He preaches often and always. And by the time you get to the early verses of chapter 4, it's not 3,000 in the church, but it's, it's up to 5,000. So, so thousands of people are hearing the gospel and are responding. And it's not just Peter. In the passage which Daryl led us through last week, in the early parts of chapter 8, uh, we discover that, that Philip as well is involved in mass evangelism. If you look back to verses 5 and 6 of chapter 8, we read there, Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. Philip preached, crowds listened, and many people responded. It's still mass evangelism. Now, at this point, it's very important that we introduce a, a wee bit of balance uh, to, to what our thinking about how we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we stopped there, if Acts stopped there, we could be forgiven for thinking that the only way to share the good news of Jesus is for somebody to stand up in front of a crowd to preach to them and they respond. Because that's all that Acts ha has shown us so far. But folks, that's simply not the case. And at this point, in the passage that we come to look at this evening, Dr. Luke tells us a, a new story and a different one. He shows us a whole other world of how the gospel can be shared. One man talking to another man about Jesus Christ. As we look at this well-known passage this evening, I want to draw to your attention three critical ingredients that are always present when one person shares the gospel with another. The first one is the prompting of the Holy Spirit. The second one is the, the witness of the Christian, in this case, Philip. And the third one is the response of the person who hears, this time the Ethiopian's response. All three of those ingredients are critical when the gospel is shared. Notice, first of all, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Philip has the Holy Spirit on his life. We know that because Luke has told us that when he first introduced us way back in chapter 6. Philip is one of the seven guys. I don't know if you remember this. At one point, the church in Jerusalem started a widow's welfare program. They needed some guys to run it. They chose seven and they said to themselves they wanted these to be seven people who were known to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Philip's one of them. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And in the opening verses of tonight's passage, we're told that Philip went on to the Gaza road because an angel of the Lord told him to. Now, it's not always clear in the biblical account what that means. When it talks about an angel of the Lord, an angel and angelos in the Greek, it simply means messenger. But as we read on, we get an idea of the identity of this messenger. In verse 29, we're told that it's the Spirit 
who prompts Philip to approach the Ethiopian's chariot. After his work's done, in verse 39, it's the Spirit who suddenly takes Philip away. So here we have a guy, Philip. He goes where the Spirit wants him to go, when the Spirit wants him to go, to whom the Spirit wants him to go, and he stays there for as long as the Spirit wants him to be there. Philip's evangelism is entirely initiated and entirely guided by the Holy Spirit. These early chapters of Acts, they're so powerful in, in the description that they give of the early church, and I think they throw up all sorts of questions for us in the church today. One of the unavoidable questions, I think, is, is how did this happen? How were these guys able to, to preach and share the good news of Jesus in a way that was so convincing that thousands of people responded? How did that happen? Well, I'm sure by now the common thread is beginning to become clear to us. Peter, the apostles, now Philip, they all had the Holy Spirit powerfully working in their lives. Harry Bohr is an American historian of the early church. In one of his books, he highlights the presence of the Holy Spirit as the catalyst to the mission of the early church. He says, the urge to witness is inborn in the church. It's given with her nature, with her very being. She cannot not witness. She has this nature because of the Spirit who indwells her. Pentecost made the church a witnessing church because at Pentecost, the witnessing spirit identified himself with the church. He made the great commission the law of her life. So spontaneous was the response of the church to this spirit-affected law that the need of consciously obeying the command of Christ was not felt. It formed no part of our motivation. I was really struck by that. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that the early church didn't go and tell people about Jesus because Jesus said to them, go into all the world and make disciples. He said that that's not the primary reason why they witnessed. And yet that's probably the primary reason why preachers like me encourage congregations to go and witness because Jesus told us to. He says here, and, and I think he's right, he says the primary reason why they shared the good news of Jesus wasn't because of the words of Jesus ringing in their ears. It was because of the Spirit of Jesus welling up in their lives, controlling every aspect of their, of their character and of their persons. The Spirit was in them. They couldn't not witness. They had to always be witnessing and sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. So Philip ends up on this Gaza road for one reason and for one reason only. The Holy Spirit of the living God wants him there. If you look this up on a map, you discover that Philip's on a desert road that leads from Jerusalem further north to Gaza, about 60 miles or so. 
even if you don't have a strong sense of biblical geography, and I won't blame you if you don't, you maybe are aware of the Gaza Strip from a much more up-to-date political situations and news reporting. Gaza Strip is just north of Egypt. It's on the Mediterranean coast. So there's a road that runs from Jerusalem through Gaza and then on to the south through Egypt and right into Africa. So this is the highway to Africa, the whole continent. The spirits prompted Philip to go onto the Gaza road because he's arranged a sort of a blind date for him. There's a guy there whom whom he wants him to meet. He's a high-ranking official from the Ethiopian court, and Luke tells us that he's a eunuch. Now, that was common practice in those days that uh, for many of the nationalities, their high-ranking political officials uh, were castrated. Uh, This guy was a chancellor of the exchequer, I think, the chief finance officer of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, there's a bit of a question mark over whether this guy was a Jew or not. Some commentators think he was, and some think he wasn't. I'm inclined to think he wasn't. Being a eunuch, he wouldn't have been allowed to convert to Judaism. He was an outsider. And the way the Jewish faith worked, he was destined to remain an outsider. Now, we have noticed already in this book of Acts how in this early church, this new community of Jesus Christ, there's room for people who were previously outsiders. People who were previously on the wrong side of the fence are suddenly welcomed in. For example, in a male-dominated culture, we find in Acts that there's a lot of talk about female disciples. Women are going to be given prominent roles. Samaritans, think of the Samaritans and everything you know about them. They are the hated, the despised half-brothers of the Jews. Who was Philip preaching to last week? He's sharing the good news of Jesus, welcoming Samaritans into the family of God. Well, here's this guy. He's not a Jew, presumably. I'm guessing he's a black African, and he's a eunuch. And that's important, too. Because in the Jewish culture, one of the distinctive and and definite marks of God's blessing on a person was the children that they had born the family with which they'd been blessed. So this guy, for that reason, he appears to be unblessed. Dare we say it, in that culture, he was regarded as cursed, and yet here he is. He's under the watchful eye of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is bringing him to a place where he's going to hear the good news of Jesus. Do you have any people in your life who you think aren't the Christian type? Do you have people in your life who you think, you know, if if the world went on for another thousand years, they'd never respond to the gospel? Maybe it's your boss. Or maybe it's somebody in your family. They're just not the Christian type. They're the last person on earth who's going to come to faith in Jesus. Folks, this Ethiopian eunuch, he's close to being the last person on earth in his day. And yet here we see him being drawn 
into the family of God, just remember there are no outsiders anymore. Jesus has come. All are welcome. This Ethiopian eunuch was in his culture an outsider, but there's something about the Jewish faith and the Jewish God that had had been drawing him. And actually, that was common enough in the ancient world. Tom Wright makes a point in his commentary. He says, when you look at some of the gods of the other nations and the kinds of practices that, that happened in those nations, it's no wonder that the God of Judaism became a wonderful oasis of clean, calm wisdom. So this guy has been drawn somehow to the God of the Jews. He's been up to Jerusalem to worship. We're imagining that he's maybe been up to one of the big religious festivals. And while he was up there, or maybe on some earlier visit, he managed to get his hands on on the the Bible or, or some part of the Jewish scriptures. And now he's reading them. Folks, there's a simple truth here that I don't want you to miss on the way through. Once a person begins to get an idea of the reality of the living God, the Bible takes on a new role in their lives. You find that in homes where the Bible used to sit on the shelf and to gather dust, suddenly it comes down. You find that people who, who wouldn't have given the Bible a moment in their lives suddenly begin to pour over it, begin to look to God's Word for the reality that, that God Himself can show them there. Could I encourage you, never hesitate to give someone a Bible. Never hesitate to invite them along to any place where the Bible is faithfully taught because God is at work through His Word. It's a living and an active presence of God in this world. God draws people to Himself through His Word. So here we have the Bible beginning to do its work But I love the honesty of the account here at this point. Luke doesn't hide from us the reality. When we read the Bible, particularly if we read it on our own, sooner or later we come upon passages that we don't understand. Luke's very honest about that. There are times when we need help. And this Ethiopian eunuch, he needs help. And it's, it's for this reason that the Holy Spirit has, has created this blind date. He's bringing Philip and the eunuch together so that Philip can help this man who's looking for the living God. So there's the first ingredient in this evangelistic moment, the Holy Spirit's prompting and is leading. The second vital ingredient here is Philip's witness. I love Luke's account here. I think he paints a very, very vivid picture of this. It's the common interaction of two travelers who meet on the road. I don't know why, but for some reason when I read this, I got a a very up-to-date picture in my head. Do you remember the guys who used to stand, I don't think they do it so much, they stood at the Broadway roundabout at the end of the motorway, looking for lifts heading west to along the motorway or south to Newry and Dublin. Does anyone remember that? They had signs in their hand. I'm imagining a scenario where one of the guys is standing with his sign and a car stops. The driver lets him in. 
they begin to talk about the normal generalities, the, the weather and the traffic. But before long, out of the blue, for some reason, they begin to talk about life and about God. And the driver admits he has problems with the Bible. And the hitchhiker who is sitting in the seat beside him says, well, let me tell you about the Bible. Let me tell you about Jesus. That's what I imagine here, a very down-to-earth, spirit-ordained meeting. One man who needs a bit of help and another. So Luke brings us very quickly to the point where we imagine the Ethiopian, he's sitting in his chariot, somebody else is probably driving it, and he's got his scroll open in front of him, and Philip's sitting in the seat beside him, and they start talking as they rumble along the Gaza road. It's a well-known passage here that the Ethiopian's struggling with, and I, for one, won't blame him at all for having questions and for struggling and as he read it. He had one question in particular about this quotation from Isaiah 53 that he's reading. Who was the prophet talking about when he described one led like a lamb to the slaughter? Was it himself or was it someone else? I want to slow down for a moment because I'm not sure that that we're in a particularly good position to understand what that conversation would have been like. I want to think for a moment of how an Old Testament prophecy like that would have worked in that culture at that time. You see, the early Christians didn't understand prophecies in the same way that we do. What we tend to do nowadays is we look for Old Testament passages and try to to line them up with Jesus. We talk about how they they pointed to Jesus or how they proved that, that the Messiah was coming. That's not how the early Christians read these passages. You see, they looked at the whole of the Old Testament, and they said that the whole was one long narrative, one long telling of the story of God's dealings with his people. And I just one illustration of this. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago we looked at, at Stephen and how he retold that story to the, the Sanhedrin when he appeared in front of them? He was able to retell the whole story of the people of Israel because he knew it like that. So Isaiah, what's going on when Isaiah writes these verses which are on the scroll in front of the men at the moment? Well, he's not sitting with a crystal ball in front of him imagining Jesus of Nazareth because he has no idea who Jesus of Nazareth is. Do you understand that? He doesn't know. He hasn't been given a a picture of, of a Galilean who will live in Roman times, who will be crucified on a cross. He doesn't know any of that stuff. And therefore, he hasn't just chosen to capture all these, all these facts that he knows in some sort of cryptic language, some sort of cryptic poetry. There's something a little bit different going on. What's going on is that Isaiah, who knows the story of God's people, who knows all the promises that haven't yet come true, all the promises of a Messiah, he's, he's meditating and he's praying. And as he meditates, and as he prays, 
a picture begins to emerge in his mind. And this is a picture of a servant. It's one who comes along, who starts to do all the things that Israel should have done, who acts as Israel should have acted, who comes to be a light to the nations as Israel should have been a light to the nations. He's one who's going to bear in his body the shame of Israel and all the nations and of God's people, one who's going to die eventually under the weight of the world's wickedness. This is the way in which God's promises are going to be fulfilled. Folks, if I've lost you there, maybe I could simplify it like this. Isaiah is writing a job description for a person he doesn't know. He's saying one day someone is going to come, a person like this. This is the person we're waiting for. The person who'll do the will of God, who'll rescue Israel and rescue the world. If you read on, and this is something I did during the week, if you read on in Isaiah's prophecy, in chapter 54, you'll see that he talks about a new covenant. In chapter 55, he talks about a whole new creation. In chapter 56, he talks about blessings for foreigners and wait for it, for eunuchs. I want you to turn with me for a moment. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3. It's on page 742. Isaiah 56, verse 3, page 742. beginning to read at verse 3, it says, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let not any eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and who hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Do you see what's happening here? Isn't it brilliant? Isaiah's talking about a time when foreigners who have always been excluded are going to be welcomed in. He's talking, he sees a vision of a time when eunuchs who are cursed, who are the people least blessed of all, he says they'll be blessed. They'll be given an inheritance that far outweighs children and grandchildren and countless descendants. And here, hundreds of years after the prophecy was given, we have an Ethiopian eunuch and he's reading this stuff. It was touching the very depths of his heart. It was stirring the greatest desires he had ever known. He's reading this stuff and it sounds too good to be true. 
And so, friends, it's a wonderful moment as the chariot rolls on down the road, as the dust blows up in their faces, as they can hardly hear each other, as Philip turns to him and he says, My friend, I know who the prophet's talking about. I know the one led like a lamb to the slaughter. I know the one who welcomes foreigners and eunuchs and everyone else who feels like they're outsiders. I know the one who makes all those dreams come true. His name's Jesus. And Luke tells us in verse 35 that Philip began at that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Friends, God has entrusted us with a message. Jesus Christ. The writer of the Hebrews, he, he understands this. His whole letter, you can boil it down to three or four words. His letter simply tells us this. There's no one like Jesus. He describes Jesus he says that he's God's last word in the world. He's the creator of the world. He's the one who reflects the glory of God, the one who bears the stamp of God's nature, the one who upholds the universe in his power. Jesus is the one who gave his life a once-for-all and single sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the one who allows us now to have confidence to come into the presence of God. There's no one like Jesus. Folks, whenever we share the gospel, we don't share a proposition. We don't share a simple scheme, three steps to faith or four steps along the road. We don't share a, a complicated philosophy. We share Jesus. We introduce people to Jesus Christ. I want you to notice one more thing about Philip's preaching, and that is that he preached the kingdom of God. Philip doesn't say so explicitly in tonight's passage, but if you turn back to verse 12 uh, of the passage which Daryl shared with us last week, you'll see that People believed as Philip preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Do you see that there's a lovely completeness there? He preached Jesus and he preached the kingdom of God. In a passage where he's teaching on evangelism, David Watson's very clear that we must preach the kingdom of God. He says, Christ himself proclaimed the kingdom of God. Evangelism, which is solely concerned with personal salvation, is not New Testament evangelism. 
The preaching of Christ affects every area of life, personal, social, political, educational, everything. We thought about this a few weeks ago in our morning service. I don't know if you remember. We were looking together at the the profession of faith that makes the first vow for a communicant. A person is asked to confess their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Ulster's full of people who want a Savior. They don't want to take the judgment for their sin. They don't want to go to hell. But Ulster's full of people who don't want a Lord. People who want Jesus as a Savior and to continue living as though they were entirely in charge of their own lives. Folks, that's not an option. The New Testament doesn't understand that as true Christian belief. A true Christian is someone who's willing for Jesus to be Lord of every part of their life, their their home, their work, their time, their money, their ambitions, their friendships, everything. Jesus is Lord. We're citizens in the kingdom of God. Philip preached this whole gospel. He preached Jesus, and he preached the kingdom of God. That's the gospel that every believer has the privilege to share, and it's the gospel that I want to to keep sharing for as long as I have breath. So the sharing of the gospel begins firstly with the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It continues when believing women and men share Christ and the kingdom of God. Thirdly, and finally, lives are changed only when there's a third ingredient present in the evangelistic moment. There must be an obedient response to the good news. Look at the eunuch. It's brilliant. Philip shares Jesus with him. And as they rattle on down the road in the chariot, he sees some water and he says, look, here's some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? He wants to be baptized. Baptism always means the same thing. It's the visible rite, the the symbolic act that marks a person's entry into the family of God. He says, I'm coming in. I want to be part of the family. I'm no longer an outsider. Count me in. This Ethiopian, this foreigner, is now part of the family of God. This cursed eunuch is now blessed. All of Isaiah's prophecies and all of this man's dreams are coming true as he responds obediently to Jesus Christ. I wonder, is there someone here this evening who's somewhat like this Ethiopian eunuch? Someone who's always felt like an outsider, 
in relation to the people of God. Is there someone here this evening who, who feels or maybe even knows that, that God's blessing doesn't rest on them? All your life you've sensed that there's something missing, that your deepest dreams and your deepest desires have never been met. They've never come true. My friend, as, as I've tried to open God's word to you here this evening, I, I believe that God's Holy Spirit uh, has been at work among us. He, he's come a, alongside, like Philip with the eunuch, he's, he's come and he's sat beside you in the pew right where you are, and, and he said to you, your search is over. I know the one you're looking for. I know the one whom the prophets were talking about, the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. I know the one who welcomes foreigners, outsiders, who blesses the cursed. I know the one who will give you all things if only you come to him. I know the one who will make your every dream come true if only you come to him. Let me tell you about him. His name is Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, we know that your Spirit is every bit as much here among us this evening as he was on the, the Gaza road with Philip and the Ethiopian. Holy Spirit of God, would you do your work here among us? Prompt, pry open our hearts, challenge us with our need for Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you take the word that we've just thought on and, and heard, and would you drive it home to us? And Holy Spirit, would you move each one of us in our hearts that we might respond, that like, like the eunuch, we would put our hesitation finally behind us, that we would say, yes, I want to take that step. I want to receive Christ. I want to enter into the family of God. Lord, move among us by your Spirit. Bring us to new and growing life in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.